The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning. And also, Happy New Year. So, there you go. Hope you're ready for a new year, 2024. Also, um, uh, don't forget tomorrow night, National Championship game. How many rooting for the Huskies? How many rooting against the Huskies? The exits, two to the front, two to the side. Um, just joking. Hey, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today as we jump into a brand new series called How to Study the Bible. And so I'm actually pretty excited about this series, uh, the content. So uh, we're going to jump into Luke 4 here in a few moments. If you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a smartphone with a Bible app, that is always helpful. Um, I've mentioned before some of my history. I didn't grow up in church, but uh, as, a, as a junior at Pilchuck, the end of my junior year, I actually came to this church and had an encounter with Jesus that really changed my life very significantly. I've always thought of my life as from birth to then and then really from then to now, simply because it really did change my, uh, you know, my life in a, in a huge way. And that encounter was amazing, but I didn't really know much about the Bible. And so I remember early on, uh, and I've shared this before, but I went and bought a, a green Jansport backpack and uh, I got a Bible and I had a, a Bible dictionary and I had a regular dictionary. And I remember going to the Bible bookstore over in Smoky Point and I basically went in and said, hey, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm learning about the, trying to learn about this stuff. You know, what should I do? They take me to the shelf and I end up walking out with a book called New Testament Theology by Leon Morris. So anyway, um, I took to reading that and I had pens and highlighters and pencils and, and all that stuff. And I remember it was all the time I was really trying to study scripture. How many guys remember Godfather's Pizza? Um, I used to deliver pizza for them. Forgive me for my current driving skills. That's where I learned it. But um, anyways, on my lunch breaks at Godfather's Pizza, I would go into my truck, my little orange dots and pickup, and I would study scripture like crazy. I remember hanging out with some friends that were relatively new to to their faith as well, and they were really into music. So I remember we'd hang out either their house, my house, wherever we would be, and they would be like learning new chords on guitar and, and figuring out how to do worship songs. And I would be over here with my backpack and all this stuff and trying to study and, and, and figure all of these things out. And I wasn't perfect, but I definitely was consistent. Why did all that matter? Um, the, the truth is, because I met God, I, there, there was a point where I realized, man, I really want to know him. And I didn't know right from wrong. Sure, it was a short lifetime of habits from you know, birth to going on maybe 17. Um, but I had a lot of habits that weren't healthy and weren't virtuous. Um, and so for me, that journey was an important part of my journey that continues today. My question is this, what about you? And I know that's a vague way to ask a question, but where are you at in that conversation when it comes to the idea of studying the Bible, when it comes to the idea of understanding this nature of who God is and, and, and what bi- the Bible is about? And one of the things I'm really proud of that, that for us as a church, there's people that are all over the spectrum when it comes to faith in Christ. We have people here that you were just baptized a couple of months ago and just gave your life to Christ a few months ago or this last year. And then we have people in here that like for me, I've been you know serving Jesus for over 30 years and others in here that for you, maybe it's been 40 or even 50 or even more years. And then of course, everything in between. And so, of course, the idea of maturity or knowing the Bible doesn't necessarily depend on having been in it for decades, but the truth is that question still matters. Where are you at in that conversation? 
And I say it because uh, I read statistics and articles all the time on church stuff, and sometimes they come from a Christian perspective. Sometimes they're just random statistics that pollsters do all over the place. But the general idea of the church in America, and so when we say that, you know, the idea of churches all over Marysville, Snohomish County, Washington, and all over the 50 states, the general idea of the church in America is that the church is biblically illiterate. And that's a problem. And and I I say that because when we talk about the idea of being biblically illiterate, it's dangerous for various reasons. One being, if you study 2,000 years now of church history, you'll find that there are eras of church history where things were being done in the name of God or in the name of church leaders that said, here's what the Bible says, and things got manipulated or twisted or mistaught based on either the culture or, or, or what they understood of the Bible, or they simply had a heart that was off from what God designed, and you see these blights or these black eyes on church history because they relied on leaders to tell them, and partly because historically the world has in general been illiterate. Like you can't actually read. And so, hey, let the priest be educated and the priest can tell me or let the minister be educated and the minister can tell me what it says because I can't read. And so in part, it was because society in general in certain eras of of church history was illiterate. But the other part is this, and this is a little more to today, but it's this. What happens in our world is this. We create our own guardrails for life based on how we feel, based on what we believe, which isn't always a bad thing, sometimes based on culture or even pop culture, when what we've been given and when you talk about scripture is we've already been offered all kinds of guardrails for how to live. And so instead, we don't understand this idea of a big spiritual book, and we'll mention that in a second here, but, but we just go, here's what I feel about it. Here's what I think about it. Here's what seems right based on that it's 2024 and this is the culture and world and I'm spiritual and here's what I believe. And you'll get all kinds of conflicting ideas based on any one of a number of people in this room gathering in a circle and going, what do we believe about this or about that? You'll get all kinds of ideas. This is why we need a plumb line. This is why we need some sort of filter of what are those guardrails meant to be, and we are given one. And one of the great shames of this idea of the Bible or the scripture is a lot of people historically that would say that it's just some old dusty book. It's just a bunch of stuff a bunch of people put together a long time ago, or some people in their sheer ignorance have even said some individual wrote a long time ago to mislead people into some spiritual manipulation. But when we understand the Bible for what it is and even going into the historicity of it and where it did come from, it really is incredible to wrap our heads around it. And one of the things I know is this, for those that, that on the spectrum of I just got baptized and I'm brand new to this, to those that have been in it for decades, it's easy to feel overwhelmed by a book that's like, it looks super official because like this one, for instance, is just black and it's leather and it's got this silver coating on the edge of the pages and it looks spiritual. Or there's so many pages, like how do you read all these? Because they're not even normal pages. They're extra thin because there's so many of them. On top of then that again, wow, there's so much to know, there's so much to understand, what do you even do to start that journey? But let me tell you this, and if you're an English teacher, you're not going to like what I'm about to say because it's a gigantic run-on sentence. So meet me in the lobby and, and, and correct me later, but let me just say this. When we live biblically illiterate, we miss, we miss the marvelous and majestic work 
that is the scripture, that reveal a marvelous and majestic God who wants to have a relationship ongoing with us through the word, and it becomes our lives become a great adventure of following into a marvelous life when we see it through his lens. Told you it was a run-on sentence. But again, that to me is the picture that's painted when we, get, when we begin to wrap our heads around it. And it's worth us doing that. So we can't afford to live biblically illiterate simply because it's overwhelming or simply because I don't understand it. I've never understood it. I've tried to read it um, and, and I just can't. So what I want to do for a little bit today is take a look in particular at a guy named Jesus that, that held the scriptures in high esteem as his ministry was established. And you might know where I'm going with this. But in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to read this text starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry, obviously. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread Alone, The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone that I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so you don't strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time or a more opportune time. Let's pray. Jesus as we walk through this text, just like I always pray, my passion is that every heart would be open to what you want to do. My passion would be that, God, you stir in every single individual in here, Lord, something that, that sparks a hunger, something that becomes a commitment, God, to take on Scripture because it is that valuable. That, Father, we would lay aside every excuse, that we, we would allow your Spirit to enliven the words that we read, that they're not just words on a printed page or something we listen to audibly as we're driving around on our Bible app or whatever, but something through your Spirit comes alive in us, God, that becomes a hunger for truth that God, it changes the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So we open up here in Luke chapter four, verse one, and we've got through the Christmas story, a little bit of John the Baptist, and then we get to Jesus um, at the Jordan, baptized by John, and then it says he left the Jordan and headed into the wilderness. But it says before that, that, that he was uh, full of the Holy Spirit. And I want to bring that up because one of the things that, that isn't an issue so much for you and I maybe today, but one of the heresies that began to go around after Jesus did what he did, his death and, and you know, burial and, and, and resurrection, 
is uh, he ascends into heaven, the, the Holy Spirit comes. But after that, people began to go, he didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't a real person. He was spirit and he taught people and we believe that God showed up that way, but he wasn't flesh. And it's a reminder, and Paul refuted this a bunch, Jesus did come in the flesh and he was fully human, which is why this idea of his temptation is a big deal. That Jesus in his flesh was tempted. Tempted not meaning something came his way that wasn't God's design and, and that was, it just showed up and then it went away. It means something showed up that wasn't God's design and he was pulled to go that direction. Something in him wanted for that temptation, that, that, that thing. Now, we know that he was victorious, but nevertheless, he was fully human. The beauty of what we're shown here as he headed into the wilderness is he was full of the Holy Spirit. And it's a reminder for you and for me that we desperately need, as I mentioned last week, the week before, we desperately need to engage the Holy Spirit that Jesus said, I'm going away, I'm going to send the Spirit. In Acts 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit was sent and empowered the believers to establish the church, to live for Christ, to shine light and to share the gospel. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. It says, and then it goes on to say, uh, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. There's a parallel here that's worth understanding. It's significant that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Because if you go back to Exodus, you have the Israelites that are enslaved in Egypt. And it says when they finally escaped and left, they ended up also in the wilderness. How long, does anybody remember, how long were they in the wilderness? For 40 years. So the idea is, is paralleled here where the Israelites did not succeed. They actually failed in the desert. Jesus, however, succeeded. It's a reminder for us of who he is. It says he was tempted by the devil or tested by the devil. A couple other words to understand about that word devil are Satan or, and this might be more helpful for you, the accuser. That's another way to understand the devil. He is the accuser or the adversary of Jesus. He's also our accuser. He's also our adversary. It says he ate, Jesus ate nothing and was later hungry. And now we enter into the details briefly of these temptations. Verse three says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, many scholars would agree, having studied this out and, and looked at the details of it, many scholars would agree that there are three facets of temptation that Jesus faces in these moments. And the first temptation, tell these, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. That temptation is the lust of the flesh. If you're taking notes, you can write that down, lust of the flesh. The idea would be this. Will Jesus provide for himself or rely on God's provision? And I say it that way to maybe bring everybody into the conversation. We all face temptation. We all face this pull of certain desire, this pull of certain things that we want fulfilled in our lives. And sometimes in the midst of that pull and that desire, there's ways we know we can fulfill ourselves or relieve ourselves in a way that is not centered on what God designed for our lives. That is that lust of the flesh, doing things our way, not according to God's design. Will we fall prey to that kind of temptation? It's the idea for a student in college or, or in high school that wasn't prepared for the test, but they really need to pass, so they cheat in order to get a better grade than they would have. It's the marriage that unfortunately breaks 
because someone left the guardrails of a marriage covenant and was unfaithful. It's the employee on a timesheet that cheats to get a little extra time for a little extra money or grabs things from work and brings them home because you think, well, I mean, I haven't got a raise and I really deserve it and so it's not that bad and I'm getting sort of what I deserve. And there's a hundred other ways you could paint the picture. But it's that idea of fulfilling those things that we want, the lust of the flesh, our longings, our desires, our own way instead of a way that keeps our faith intact. It reminds me, and I'll come back to this in a moment, of in Exodus, and I've mentioned this a bunch and I'll bring up more, when they got out of Egypt, Israel, and ended up in the desert, how in the desert they were hungry just like Jesus hungered here. And in the desert it says they began to complain and grumble against God, against Moses. And where Israel failed in their grumbling, Jesus did not. Come back to the, the story here in, in Luke, and it says, the devil says, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus answered, for it is written. Everybody say, for it is written. That's an important part to understand. For it is written. Another translation says, the scripture says, man shall not live on bread alone. And, and one gospel would say, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he's doing is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus quotes from the guardrails already given by God to Israel. Again, if you go back to that Israel fails, they end up in the desert for 40 years. But think about this for a moment. In the midst of the nation of Israel escaping captivity in Egypt, they got to see God bring 10 plagues, and part of that was understanding the plagues only happen in part two, Egypt alone and not Israel, to see that and go, wow, only God. And then for Pharaoh to finally go, Moses, get out of here and take all the people. I don't care anymore. I'm tired of the plagues, and they leave. And they, they end up getting out of Egypt, and they head towards the Red Sea. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh goes, what have I done? I just got rid of all of our slave labor. I better send the army to bring them back. So he sends the armies to go after them. And it says that the Israelites ended up on the edge of the Red Sea. Anybody remember what happens at that point? The Israelites are like, we're going to die. What have you done, Moses? And Moses is like, God, we're going to die. What have you done? And God's like, what have I done? No, God, that's not what God did. No, God says, Moses, lift your hands, raise your staff, part the sea. You go, that doesn't make any sense, but Moses does it. And what happens? A giant wind begins to blow, and it says that the, the, the sea was split in half, and the Israelites came through and were rescued on dry ground and got all the way through. And then after they exited the Red Sea, the waters came back upon themselves, and the armies of, of Egypt were drowned in the sea. Can you imagine experiencing that miracle? Can you imagine? I mean, you look at that and go, okay, God, you're that good. Okay, God, you're that amazing. And, and within days after that, what are they doing? They go from, God, that was incredible. Moses, way to go, buddy. Give me five. That was awesome. God, you're incredible. God, I'm starving. God, where are you? What have you done? If only we could be back in Egypt where there was plenty to eat. Why do I make such a big deal out of that portion of the story? Because it's amazing how in our own lives, we can gather in a place like this and go, God, you're awesome. God, you're so good. This year is yours, Lord. I dedicate it to you. 2024, baby, you got this, Lord. And then we leave here and the opposite happens. 
Something doesn't go the way we think it should. And God, where are you? And what have you done? And why did you leave? And do, do you even care? See, for, for Jesus, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And it's that reminder for you and I. What does he do? He says, the scripture says. He goes back to what he knows, not based on circumstance, but based on his understanding of the nature of his heavenly Father, he quotes from scripture. And we have that same tendency to, to be in a place at certain moments where God is so good and we're celebrating a high point only to fall prey to within a day or a week or months later, understanding something entirely opposite and believing differently than when we did when God seemed so good. The next temptation, verse five, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant somehow all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation is the pride of life. Look what you could become if only you would compromise. Look at all that could happen. Look how many people would envy you if you, if you did this thing, if you got this feed, if you, you had this type of influence or this fame. And in our world, this is a game that gets played all the time that we can all end up tempted by. Look at all you could have if you would just compromise your faith, maybe just in a little way over here, maybe just a little bit like this. And again, this is something that, that we all probably are very familiar with. What people will do to become somebody. We, we make climbing the success ladder about us and if I can just get there. And it doesn't matter that I gotta step on heads. What people will do to lie about their education in order to get a job. Anybody hear the name George Santos recently? The guy had all kinds of stories he was weaving about who he was that weren't even true, only to become some sort of political influencer. I think about the, you know, the people that plagiarize in order to publish some book. And if you've been following what went on at Harvard the last couple of months, there's all kinds of things about Israel and Hamas related to it. But I will say that what came out in part was the president of Harvard had plagiarized to be published. And that was part of her ability to get the job as president. And who just a few days ago now resigned in shame because of it. Things that people will do to get somewhere. I think of how people will smear others in order to get votes in an election. And can I just take an aside for a moment and say this? It's 2024, it's a big election year, and I encourage you to buckle your seatbelts. I would encourage some of you to maybe possibly get a tattoo that says let cooler heads prevail on your arm and be reminded of it maybe daily in 2024. There are things coming that could polarize your family once again, that could polarize some of your friendship circles once again. Do not let that happen. Go back to what scripture tells us. Keep your head in all situations because there will be people that will do all kinds of things in the name of getting elected and they will even pander to those of us that are followers of Christ to somehow make it about how if that happens, then that's not good and we better do this and if we don't, and it comes out of a place of anger and it comes out of a place of pride, it does not come out of a place of humility. And I'm warning you as a church, I promise in 2024 to keep my head in all situations, but let me challenge you to do the same. It doesn't mean you don't have a vote or a voice, but it does mean it matters how you use your vote and your voice. 
I'm not getting into the details of it, but let me just tell you this. Why don't you read the very end of Luke chapter six? It will remind you how to live. And I believe it will say something in there about love your enemies. And there's a lot of people in faith circles that will set that scripture aside. I refuse to do that. And I hope you will too. Side sermon. (laughs) How about the idea of people compromising their integrity to become somebody famous? Many of us in here have heard the stories of something called the casting couch. What some people are willing to do to get roles in movies so the director, the producer, whoever has the influence to hire them for the job, they can get it. And there's been all kinds of compromise and some of that's come out in the media and there's all kinds of names, Harvey Weinstein, all this stuff. But what some people had done, sadly, in order to get somewhere in their career of fame. And then finally, and this is a much smaller example, but it probably applies to a lot of us, how we try to curate our social media so that people think maybe we have a certain life we don't really have. In small ways, we can fall prey to it too. We're not exempt because we're somehow not famous or have some sort of power. Jesus answered, verse eight, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. What did Jesus do when he faced those temptations? He went back to, it is written. And so by the time you get to the third temptation, it's amazing what the enemy's willing to do. Because watch this. The devil then led him, the third temptation, led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. See this? Watch. He quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. This is again, back to theologians, what theologians would call the lust of the eyes. The temptation, here's what it is for Jesus, the temptation for Jesus to use his God-given gifts to show others how powerful he was. And that same temptation is something you and I face because let me say this, According to Paul, and according to what we understand about how we're gifted, we've all been given some gifts by God. And there's all kinds of spiritual gifts and natural gifts that we have. And we have the gift of leadership, administration, discernment, wisdom, healing, all this stuff, just natural gifts of charisma and ways that we build bridges with people. We have gifts that God has given us. But at the core of the gifts we've been given Every time we use those gifts and somebody compliments us, somebody notices and takes note and says something to us, the question becomes, what is our response? Because it's easy in the world that you and I live in to use our gifts for our glory. We would never say it that way, but boy, I want people to feel good about me. And I hope people compliment me in the lobby on the way out. I can say, hey, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks a lot. Pray. Hey, praise God for that. But at the core, is it where I find my identity? Do I need people to compliment me? Do I need somebody to say, boy, that sermon was the best one I've ever heard. You're probably the best preacher of your generation. Thank you. Praise God. What is it for you and I in the ways that we've been gifted? And what do we do in the midst of those gifts? Is it so that people think we're something? Or is it so that we can point to a savior and make sure that whatever we have been given, however we've been blessed by God, 
that it's always our passion to point to our Savior, to shine light on Him, to give Him the credit, to give Him the glory. Some of you are charismatic beyond belief. Some of you serve like nobody's business. Some of you can sit down and give all kinds of insight, discernment to people in conversations and people can marvel about it. Some of you have a gift of leadership and to rally people. Some of you have the gift to pray for somebody and a faith rises up and breakthroughs happen and miracles happen and that's incredible. But when somebody says, wow, thank you for that, are you quick to give God praise? Or does it make you feel better about yourself? See, the temptation Jesus faced, this last one, is one where the hope would be people really think something of him. And if you notice, the enemy even quoted scripture. And the reason I bring that up is simply this. One of the dangers that can happen is that you and I get so used to our pet places in the Bible. And man, we go, gosh, I love reading the Psalms. Gosh, I just love, every day I read a chapter of Proverbs and it's so good about wisdom. And man, I tell you what, reading Philippians, joy, joy, the joy of the Lord is wonderful. But I don't like Ephesians, it's a little more rebuking and I avoid revelation at all costs. And Ezekiel's a nut job. And I don't understand anything of these historical books, so I just avoid them altogether. And the danger of you and I just picking one random thing here and one random thing there, cherry picking them out of scripture, is that we don't ever understand the whole of it and it misleads our theology. Because the importance of that is this, what we believe determines how we behave. And so the whole, it's, it's why somewhere around, I don't even remember, nine-ish, eight or nine years ago, as a team, we met and we're talking about, you know, we want everybody to read the whole Bible every year. We want that to be a goal for everyone every year. And so we put out a plan every year and we put one out, you know, a couple weeks back as we got into the new year. It's called the More Jesus Reading Plan. It's on the YouVersion app. If you go to our website, you can find it and click on it. You can go to our app and, and find it and click on it. But I encourage you to get in there and subscribe to it. The reason I say that is one, you will get to read the whole of the Bible. Two, we, we like and comment and stuff like that together and you can see what people are doing and be encouraged by some of the things um, that, that, that people in the room even are, are reading together, including myself, um, out of scripture. So we get to sort of read it together day by day. And there's also some cool devotional thoughts and some videos that give you some insight into the big picture of Genesis or Luke or Psalms or there'll be more of those. Anyway, um, it's super healthy. It says this, Jesus answered, and said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, and, and he was great at this, but he's Jesus, but he's fully human, but he's full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was amazing at having the kind of humility and security in his heavenly father that he, he could defer and that he could overcome. And I'm telling you, that same strength and that same discernment and that same understanding is extended to you, not because you're a savior, but because God has given us something incredible in understanding this thing we call the Bible. And I would never want anybody in here, and I mentioned it earlier, to be overwhelmed because you've never ever read the whole thing. And you caught, caught a couple of verses and been here on Sundays and gone, well, I remember that teaching or that thing. But we, we look at it and go, this thing's huge and look at all that stuff. But let me encourage you to start somewhere. And I would say, start with the reading plan. But also verse 13, when the devil came and uh, when devil finished tempting him, he left until a more opportune time. 
And if you notice that, you might notice that if you've ever been tempted and maybe you overcame and I hope so and I praise God for that, there's another one coming tomorrow. It doesn't end. It doesn't just go away because you had victory. Most of us know that. If you don't, I'm just telling you. But it's your ability through the Holy Spirit to engage the truth of Scripture. Paul says, if you're taking notes, write it down. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? You run in such a way as to get the prize. Every athlete goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. You and I go into strict training. I'm adding a little bit here to understand it. Go into strict training to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, no, no. He says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've yelled at others for 30 minutes, I may set myself may not be disqualified. But for you and I, Paul says, it's strict training, not to be daunting and, 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 and empty cup futility all the time, but as a reminder to be sharp, as a reminder to consider the tools that God has given us to walk out the ability to overcome. Imagine what it looks like in your life in 2024 that you know how to handle hard situations with a brand new patience and wisdom you never had. Imagine what it would look like for you and I to have the kind of heart Jesus had towards our neighbors. Imagine for you and I the peace and security that comes with walking with our Savior daily, no matter what we face or whenever we face it. Here's your homework. Get out your phone, get out a pen, get out something to keep this. Acts 17, 11. I wanna challenge you to memorize it as we start the year. It says this. Now the Bereans, and I've used this before and you might be familiar with it. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received Paul's message with eagerness and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. And that's my prayer for us. And you might sit here and go, we're gonna dismiss in a second and you haven't even taught me how to study the Bible. What are we even doing? And today was intentional as an introduction because we'll get to the what in a little bit but I want you to deeply understand and be convinced of the why. It is essential for us, for each of us, to be people who study the Bible. And Luke writes in Acts 17, 11, that's to be a person of noble character. And that's what I wanna challenge all of us towards. Jesus today, I pray that we would walk out of here challenged to memorize a verse, convinced that this isn't just about some guy giving me a, a pep talk for 30 minutes every Sunday. This isn't just about some spiritual box check, Lord. But I believe wholeheartedly that as we take this journey seriously, that we think about the idea of strict training, as we consider the hard things we might face this year, the stuff that might overwhelm or even tempt us away from your design, the situations that, that, that could cause us to have anxiety and, and, and lose sleep all the time, that Lord, there's other ways to battle this. And I honestly believe the gift you've given us is scripture. 
the Holy Spirit coming alive inside of us, convicting us, challenging us, directing us, helping us understand your nature, your heart, your passion for us. Jesus, let it be a commitment we make as we begin this year to be people that take the responsibility of studying the Bible, that we want to have the kind of character you desire. And that's part of that equation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.